Good morning again. As you can see, there are more children uh, this, this day than in previous weeks because school starts on Thursday. All of you kids going to school, sorry to remind you. Um, but welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank Wong. Uh, if I don't know you, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Uh, but we're in the middle of a, a series on the book of James. We only have one more week left um, after this week, and then we'll head into, I believe it's Jeremiah. Um, so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5, we'll be starting the, this last chapter in James. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. Please pay attention, for this is the word of God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back from fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, Until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come before you um, acutely aware of our, our shortcomings, of our, dis- our distractedness, of our sin, of our shame. And Lord, we come before you as penitent people. But we come not in fear, but in hope. Hope that you are a patient God, a God who will bear with us in our sin and who has sent his only son to die for us on a cross. And so, Lord, we ask that as we examine your word, that you would be patient with us, that you would be kind and merciful to us, that you would open this passage to us, that we might see the wonder of your gospel. And so, Lord, be with us now, we pray. Amen. I want to start by telling you about a wealthy investor back in the early 2000s. By all accounts, he was a wild success. Uh, He lived a lavish lifestyle and was fabulously wealthy. 
he had four homes, four big mansions, one in uh, New York, another in the Hamptons, one on Palm Beach and the south of France. It sounds like a pretty nice life, right? He had a private jet, all the creature comforts that one could uh, hope for. Uh, if you remember back when VH1 was a thing, um, they ran this show called The Fabulous Life Of, and they'd basically tell you about all the amazing riches of the rich and famous, how the 1% or even the half percent live. And he could definitely have been on this show. Private chefs to cook his meals, uh, maids to clean his house and do his laundry, groundskeepers to tend his lawns, all those pesky chores that you uh, don't like doing were foreign to him. No washing the dishes, uh, the coolest cars, all of the things that you could want. Oh man, what a life, right? They could literally retire right then and do whatever he wanted. Jet set, see the world. He didn't have to worry about how to pay for college or weddings. Money wasn't even a concern. And that's the life that we often desire, right? That's the life that we're like, man, that would be awesome if we lived that. Like, ooh, I could get used to this. Well, this investor's name is Bernie Madoff. And you're like, oh, I remember that guy. He literally ran the world's largest Ponzi scheme to the tune of something like $17.5 billion. Not million, billion. The scope of the fraud and the length of it were mind-boggling. He had been living a life of luxury for decades by defrauding his investors. And he's a cautionary tale for us, right? Outwardly, everything seems to point to him being a success. But the truth is, he's a lying, scheming, cheating thief of a man who's a scumbag and whose schemes destroy the life savings of countless people. He's our generation's shining example of what happens when money, power, and acceptance by the elite become your everything. In his own words, Madoff said in an interview that he did um, after he was convicted, he said, put yourself in my, own, in my place. Your whole career, you're on the outside looking in. You're on the outside of the club, but then suddenly you have all the big banks, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, all the chairmen knocking on your door asking, hey, can you do this for me? You're in the club. He was so hell-bent on getting wealth, acceptance, and comfort that he did whatever it took to make the club, no matter the consequences for others, and many suffered for his quest. And it's people like Bernie Madoff that James addresses here in chapter 5. James points out the foolishness of the rich who abuse the wealth that they have and also abuse people in the quest of, uh, for more money. But I think one of the biggest concerns is not with the wicked, but with the righteous. How does a righteous person live in a world like this? And James speaks to them as well. And so as we look at this passage, it divides neatly into two parts. And for many of you that are reading in the ESV, it's your headings, right? Verses 1 to 6 show the sin and folly of the rich. And verses 7 to 12 address how we as Christians ought to respond. And hopefully we'll be able to see how the gospel sets us free from sin and folly to enable us to do the things that James calls us to do in verses 7 to 12. And so let's dive into the sin and folly of the rich in verses 1 to 6. And right up front, 
It's a familiar start for those who were here last week. Again, James starts his exhortations with, come now, you, which is really, uh, hey, listen up, you. And as we work our way into his words, his sort of tone gets harsher and harsher. It's like, you rich people, gosh. He tells them to weep and howl for the miseries that awaits them. At least in last week's passage, when he said, hey, listen up, you people who do all these planning, uh, all these plans and um, make plans and all of that, James assumes that in last week's passage that those he's addressing actually care about what is good and right. But James here has no path for redemption for the rich people he is describing. It's weep and howl, not, hey, you should maybe turn from this. And so it's likely that he's actually speaking to unbelievers. And of course, it's important here to remember that he's not condemning having wealth or being wealthy. Uh, Many great heroes of the faith were wealthy people. Think about Abraham and Joseph. Think about David. But so what is James condemning if it's not just sort of being rich? Well, he's condemning the abuse and lack of proper stewardship of that wealth. If you'll look at with me, um, you'll find four accusations that James will level at these rich folks that he's sort of spitting these words at. First, you have laid up treasure in, in the last days. Actually, let me back up. You'll see that he'll say, you have, four times. Okay, And so what's the first you have? The first you have is you have laid up treasure in the last days. Hoarding um, and the non-use of treasure is what he's talking about. They were stocking away their treasures for a rainy day that they could imagine, all the while ignoring the certain judgment that comes with putting their security in the things of this world. All of this vast accumulated wealth would actually become a powerful testimony at the judgment day against them. This is the reason why they corrode and rust and decay, and that corrosion, rust, and decay signify their spiritual worthlessness before God. And so what, is, what are the rich people putting their, their concern in, their security in? Nothing. Worthless things. And this actually goes with uh, chapter 4, verse 17, actually. Um, I didn't actually get to it last week, but in chapter 4, verse 17, it says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. These people are indicted because of their sin of omission. They were blessed with material goods, but they did literally nothing with them. They're hoarding them. They're putting them up and laying them up away for a rainy day. They refuse to employ the gifts that they have been given for the good of those around them. So we can think about the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. The one who is condemned at the end of the day is the one who refused to do anything with his money. He refused to employ the wealth that he was given for the prospering of his master's kingdom, and so he is thrown into the dungeon. His sin wasn't of commission, but of omission. He failed to do what he knew was right, and so it was sin. The second accusation, the second you have, is you have kept back the wages of your workers by fraud, and this is a terrible sin. People worked hard and they were defrauded of their wages for the simple reason that their employer could. When your employer knows that you have nowhere to turn for a recourse and you desperately need this job simply to live, you're at their mercy. 
you're vulnerable, and he knows that he can make you work for far less than what you contracted for. And what are you going to do about it? Quit? You can't afford to quit. And it's terrible, because you're living at a subsistence paycheck. You're literally living paycheck to paycheck. Well, when your paycheck is day to day, you have a big problem. If you don't get paid, you don't eat. Have you ever tried to work a whole day without eating and then work another day before you can eat again? It's really hard. It's, in fact, backbreaking. You could actually starve and die because of the level of work that you're being asked to do and not being paid for. Which brings us to verse 6. We'll get back to verse 5 in, in a second. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one. Failure to pay wages is among the reasons why James accuses the rich of murder and condemnation. The words of condemnation are legal ones. The rich are using their influence to escape the legal penalties for their sins in addition to perverting the justice system for their own gain. They're not just getting away with fraud, but also murder. They're using the system to manipulate and destroy others for their own gain. It's made all the worse because the, rich, the righteous person either can't or won't defend themselves. If it's can't defend himself, the rich are guilty of preying on the very people they ought to be defending. It's like murdering an unarmed man in cold blood, and it's made all the worse because he's unarmed. And if it isn't uh, he can't, it's he won't. And if it's he won't defend himself, the rich have an even bigger problem because they're attacking a pacifist who refuses to stand up for himself. Like, what a coward. You're going to go after the person that won't even defend himself. And for what? Why do the rich do all of this? They do it to live on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. It's a you have lived in, self, in luxury and self-indulgence. And this accusation reveals the selfish disregard for others and the complete absorption with their own pleasure. And at the root of the condemnation is not only their foul and evil deeds, but also their idolatry. Why are they condemned? They're condemned because they have tried to replace the Lord with riches. But even then, that's just a sort of surface idol. Greed and love of money are secondary idols. Um, they review, reveal the true idols of the rich. Uh, for those of you that are in youth group or have come to youth group, we're going through a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, and this week was actually about money. So for all of you that were at youth group, this should sound familiar. Okay? And Tim Keller calls the idols that lie below the love of money, he calls them deep idols. Because they, these deeper idols provide the motivation for the pursuit of money. And so we rarely pursue money and riches for themselves. It's always in the service of obtaining something else, either security or power, friendship, love, acceptance, status, reputation, or pleasure. And we have these powerful desires um, for security, power, love, friendship, um, acceptance, all of that. And we have these powerful desires because that's what we're made for. We were made to fulfill these desires in God. But the idolatry comes when we seek, them, we seek to fill them with something else, something that we, can ha that we think we can get by having money. So why do we hoard? 
We hoard so that we can save up for that imaginary rainy day, so that we can have security. Why do we defraud? Because it makes us feel powerful that we can get away with it. Or because we simply don't want to give away the options that money affords us. So we strip the options of everybody else. Why do we live in luxury and self-indulgence? Because we want pleasure and comfort. That's the idol. Why do we condemn and murder? So that, again, we can feel powerful and have more options. And all of that is idolatry. Do you see where friendship with the world leads you? It leads you to the abuse of power. After all, if we believe that we are actually in competition with one another and that there's no one ultimately looking out for you, then you have to do whatever it takes to come out on top. Mercy is for the weak, because if the roles were reversed, they'd have no mercy on you. Ultimately, the world says that all that matters is you. And so it doesn't matter who you step on as long as you get what you want or what you need. And from the world's perspective, it is wise to lie cheat, leverage, defraud, and murder to get what you want. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Survival of the fittest, right? Nobody's looking out for you, so you got to look out for yourself. If it's all about you, then it's all on you to make it happen. And on a side note, I want to make sure that um, we bring this home to us. Because it's easy sort of to condemn the rich as these people over here. Because, you know, most of us don't have that level of wealth. We don't, wouldn't consider ourselves poor, but we are, we are relatively well off. You know, it's easy to stand back and just sort of lob these judgment grenades at the rich and the wealthy without actually thinking that these problems are ours too. And sure, we don't hoard treasure like Bernie Madoff did. I mean, come on. But surely, we like our comforts and our luxuries, too. Students, how many gaming platforms do you have? How many Xboxes? An iPad, an iPhone? Where do we begin to live in luxury and in self-indulgence? Adults, what does luxury and self-indulgence look like for you? A massive shoe collection or a purse collection? a huge library that you couldn't hope to work through in your lifetime. Unless you think that I'm taking sort of shots at myself, uh, at all of you without taking shots at myself. Board games. I love board games. I have so many board games. And at $50 a pop, think about how much money I've spent on board games. I've got quite the collection. Yikes. And I'm not saying that having possessions is bad, but I would bet that most of us don't actually think about why we accumulate possessions. We just sort of tend to say, oh, that game looks awesome. I think I'll get it. Or those shoes, they're really cute. Or, wow, that's a really great deal on a guitar. I should totally get that. There's almost an unthinkingness in shopping. It's often about what I want rather than what I think is wise. And right there in the moment... Are we making decisions based on our, our own pleasures or based on the kingdom of God? Do I actually steward the resources given to me? Do I steward them well? Do I exhibit Christ through my spending? How thoughtful am I about my possessions, about my purchases? Am I using the wealth that I have been given for the Lord's purposes? But let's say 
you are thoughtful about your purpose or about your purchases. Some of you are better at that than I am because I tend to be really unthinking. James still says that you have an issue. That issue is how to deal with people that will do whatever it takes to get what, what they want. Even if your issue isn't stewardship, your issue will still be dealing with people that have stewardship issues. As Christians, we are called to a life of righteousness, and that means bearing with sinful people that will use whatever they have to get whatever they want, to win. And that will often mean that you will lose in this life. It will mean that others might get that promotion instead of you. That, mean, that might mean that someone defrauds you of your life savings. That might mean that your kid doesn't get playing time because some other parent is leaning on that coach unfairly. And James has given us a picture of what the righteous will have to deal with in this life. And, and he gives it through the lens of the gospel. And he's saying the gospel enables you to be patient in the face of suffering, in the face of these terrible people that are going to do whatever it takes to satisfy themselves. And so how do Christians respond with gospel patience? Well, James calls them to patience. And the word patience occurs four times in six verses in verses 7 through 12. He actually uses it twice in verse 7. And so the first thing that he says to believers after he gets done describing these terrible people is, hey, you better be patient. You know, the word therefore connects verses 12 to uh, verses 7 to 12 to the warnings to the rich. And so James is saying, in response to the fact that the rich will oppress, murder, manipulate, and defraud you, you should be patient. Um, Now actually should probably be the best time to deal with verse 12 because it sort of just appears out of nowhere and starts talking about something that doesn't seem to be in line with everything else. And so I figured we'd just sort of talk about it here. It talks about oaths, while verses 7 through 11 talk about patience and steadfastness. And you're like, what is James talking about? Why did we go from patience to oaths? It just makes no sense. But it's actually really insightful. And I put it right up front because when we are full of zeal for the Lord, before we actually endure any suffering, we tend to be really naive. We tend to be really on fire for the Lord, and we tend to be very optimistic about how we're going to fare when the trials and temptations and the suffering come. We would actually make statements like Peter did when he was told uh, that all the disciples would fall away back in Matthew 26. He declares that even if everyone deserted Jesus, he never would. Like, yeah, you're going to be that one guy, that one exception to the, the rule. And then what does Jesus say? He says, no, you're going to de- deny me three times. And even after Jesus himself says, you, Peter, are going to de- deny me three times, Peter says, even if I must die with you, um, I will not deny you. How did that go for him? Not so well. He made these big declarations, these big statements, these big O's, if you will, about what he's going to do, how he's going to embody this gospel. And James is telling us it's better to be genuine than to make big statements. Patience isn't going to be easy. Only the foolish will think that they are going to be, that this is going to be a cakewalk for them. 
If it were going to be that easy, Jesus probably wouldn't have had to come and die for our sins. And so patience seems to be the big takeaway that James wants to drill into his readers as, hey, patience is going to be tough, but it's possible to be genuine. Let's not make a big deal about it and let's just get on with being genuine. And so let's look at the various imperatives directed at the believer, the advice that James is giving them in the face of suffering. Verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, be patient and establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another because the judge is standing at the door. Verse 10, consider the patience of the prophets who proclaimed both the grace of God and his judgment that was coming. Verse 11, think about Job who was steadfast in his faith to the Lord. Through unimaginable suffering, Job was patient, putting his fate in the hands of God. And it's all calls to patience, right? Easy. Even verse 9, which doesn't speak about patience explicitly, is about patience. Because James knows that when we become impatient, that's when we're most likely to grumble. When we grumble about something, the subtext is, how long is it going to take the Lord to make this right? And when we begin to complain as the Israelites did in the desert in the book of Exodus, the true meaning is, if I were God, it wouldn't take this long. And that shows the impatience that we have. And so James is saying, hey, don't grumble, because when you grumble, you're actually being impatient. But think about that statement. If I were God, it wouldn't take this long. Do you see the arrogance of that statement? You know, James, we're we're in a part of James where he's talking about gospel humility. A gospel humility that will keep you from worldliness. And so a a, a true gospel humility makes us patient. But the question is why? Why does gospel humility make us patient? And James gives us three answers, and not surprisingly, they're eminently practical. First, he gives us sort of this example in verse 7 of the farmer who must wait for the rains to come in order to grow his crops. And James is reminding us that we already wait on the Lord patiently, expectantly, for our, our very livelihoods. So why is enduring patiently for justice any different? We trust the Lord to provide for us, and we have promises for God, from God that he will provide justice. So the question is, do you trust God? And James' answer is, you already do in some areas of life. So just apply that trust in, in this area too. Second, we see that James reminds the believers of the impending judgment. He's trying to remind us with both the harsh exposition in verses 1 through 6 and the reminder that the coming of the Lord is at hand in verses 7 through 12, that the oppressors don't get away with anything. The Lord will judge, and that judgment is surely coming. Revelation 20 and 21 remind us that there is a judgment day coming, a day when the righteous will have every tear wiped away by the Lord himself. And all will be made right, and all will be made new. And lastly, he reminds us that the Lord is compassionate and merciful in verse 11. And this gets to the heart of things. When we suffer, one of the first things that we ask is, why, Lord? Why? 
Why does it have to be this way? And you know, we don't always get a, a clear answer. In fact, I rarely get a clear answer. But we know for certain that we serve a Lord who is compassionate and merciful to us. And how do we know? Because we have seen him go to a cross for us. And not just that he has gone to a cross for me as a Christian, but he has gone, for, gone to a cross for me as a rich folk, as a rich person, as a person that was described in verses 1 through 6. And so this is where the gospel begins to transform things. Because up to now, these answers have been something that we have to produce. Trust God. Remember that the, the judgment will come. Just bear up under these mantras. You can do it. But the gospel gives us far more than sort of purely future blessings that you, you have to cling to in the midst of your suffering. There is a present value for the gospel in your sufferings. So what present value does the gospel bring to our suffering? And I think that it starts with the fact that the gospel is patient with us right now. So where do we start? We start with the same place that the gospel does, that you're a sinner. Remember, we stood in the same place as these rich folks. Remember that no one is righteous in themselves. We're all sinners accountable to God. Romans 1 and 2 make this very clear. You and I are in the same boat as Bernie Madoff. You and I are in the same boat as the worst people in all of history. I tend to shock my youth by saying, hey, think about Hitler, think about Stalin. You think, oh, I'm better than them. But guess what? They're sinners and you're sinners too, and we all deserve the same condemnation. Sure, we don't hoard treasure or leverage our means to pervert the system, but we surely murder others in our hearts in anger. We surely commit adultery in lust. We surely put our trust and confidence and security in created things, be it family or money or even this church family. We're all idolaters at heart. And to say that we're any better than these folks who are sinning against us, these rich folks, is foolishness, because we're not. We're all condemned by our sin. It's foolish and pointless to sort of squabble over who is less in debt when we're all hopelessly in debt. It's like when you get into a mud puddle, okay, and you come out and like, you, you've, you're like completely covered from head to toe, and you look at the other guy, it's like, <laughs> I'm cleaner than you, but you're still covered head to toe in mud. Like, what's the point? Why are you saying that you're cleaner? You're not. You, you might have a little less mud, but you're still super muddy. You're still going to have to take a shower. So why are we any different? But the gospel gives us hope, right? That it was in that mire of sin and selfishness and idolatry that the Lord God sent his son to live, suffer, and die for us. And that's the gospel that you and me are terrible people, just like these rich people, but we're saved for some reason by a compassionate and merciful God. He was patient with us in our sin. Think about it. At what age did you come to Christ? How many years did he patiently wait, forestalling judgment that you righteously and richly deserved so that he could make you his own? And what about now? How patient is the Lord being with you as you struggle with whatever sin you're com habitually committed to? 
And as we Christians look upon the rich described in this passage, how do we feel about them? What is the implications of our sin and this hope that the gospel has given to us? How do we look upon these people? Can we be haughty and condescending? No, we can't. Why? Because the gospel reminds us that it is only by the grace of God that we're not there anymore. Rather, the gospel makes us react with humility and love because we know exactly how lost they are. We know exactly what they're missing. We know exactly how terrible it is to be without Christ. We know exactly how lost we are in our sins. And we are Christians. We are Christians. We're being transformed more and more into his likeness, which means that we are learning to love the things that he loves in the order that he loves them. And so Christ and the gospel are paramount. They are controlling who we are and how we feel and what we do. And so how did Christ look upon us in our sin? Matthew 9, 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so Christ's compassion and mercy lead to patience with us, which leads us to patience with others. For Christ's love for us in our sin leads us to love for others in their sin. And who knows, maybe by the grace of God, this person, this rich person, may be saved later on. And maybe it happens in small part because of the testimony of God's grace embodied by the grace that you extended. Grace from a person who was hurt profoundly, who was murdered even, to a person who absolutely doesn't deserve it. Do we see sinners and lost the same way that the Lord Jesus does? Surely deserving of wrath, yeah, they deserve whatever I give them. But do we also look on them with compassion? Does our heart burn for the lost? Does our heart drive us to seek to save them by revealing the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ as it was done for us? It's the same grace and mercy that saved us. But that doesn't make it easy. Remember we said that verse 12 reminds us that it is better to be genuine than to make grand statements about our faith. Any one of us can say that we will be patient in the face of suffering, but it's much harder to actually do it. I want to tell you and close by telling you about a man named Wilfredo Gomez. He's an El Salvadorian man who was part of uh, the inf infamous MS-13 gang. As many of you, MS-13 is one of the worst gangs in all the world. Um, they found their start in the streets of LA. Their brutality and viciousness are legendary. They lie, they steal, they cheat, they defraud. They, their leaders live like kings. They murder on a whim. Sound like the folks that James was talking about? Well, Wilfredo was deep into this life, and he ended up becoming, uh, going to jail for his crimes. But while in jail, he found the Lord. And when he was done with his sentence, he had no friends, no family, and nowhere to go. And so you're thinking, well, Frank, I bet I know where he went. I bet he went right back to that gang. But he knew that if he went back to the gang, he was going to die. guess what? The church found out that he had come to the Lord. 
the local church. They had found out that he had come to faith, and so when he was released, they were waiting for him outside of the prison. And they weren't there to, like, beat him up, because remember, this is a dude that had literally lied, cheated, stolen from these very people. He represented a gang that represents a horrible life for their children. This gang was literally trying to recruit these people's children to come and live a sinful life. And he embodied that. But yet the church members showed up. And they showed up to help him. Think about the patience that these church members exhibited to this man. The patience to say, I know where you were. And I know what you have been saved out of. Let me show you what it looks like to live as a Christian. And so they shepherded him. They discipled him. And today, he works as a pastor in one of the worst neighborhoods in all of El Salvador. It's so bad that the public, and the public service employees won't even enter. And amazingly, the church has become a way out. MS-13 members and um, other gang members will allow their members to leave the gangs if they're Christians. And they even check up on them, too. They say, if you're not going to live the life of a Christian, I'm going to kill you because you pose a threat to me. Wilfredo runs a halfway house for ex-gang members. And when he was saved so long ago, there were only about 90 ex-gang members in all of El Salvador that were Christians. Today, there are 1,500. And this is the power of the gospel, right? That Christians there who are still waiting for justice to, to happen for them, they're waiting on the Lord patiently, and as they do so, they proclaim the grace of their patient Savior, and it's having an impact. When we gracefully and graciously and patiently endure as our Savior did, his gospel is powerfully preached to those that are lost, for we show a glimpse of Christ and his sufferings to a world that desperately need that gr glimpse of a Savior. We have a Savior who is patient with us. And as we're patient with others, we image Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you were patient with us, that you were patient with us in our sin, that while we were yet sinners, you came and died for us. Lord, we thank you that you're patient even now with us now. Uh, that while we are in our sin, that you um, don't just give up on us, but that you sanctify us, that you uh, don't forsake us, but that you are faithful. Lord, as we look at the prospect of suffering in this world, would you make us like you? Patient with the lost, patient with the, uh, with the unrighteous that we would um, image what you have done for us to them. 
And we ask that what has happened in El Salvador would happen here. That many would come to you, that we would see uh, your kingdom flourish, not because of fancy words, but because of patient people and a patient gospel. And so, Lord, be with us as we go. Help us in our, in our unbelief and in our, in our impatience, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.